I'm Peter Marks, theater critic for The Washington Post. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. And I'm also Terry T. <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> Terry actually called in sick. He, had, he sent us... Uh, he, He's uh, under the weather. He texted us a note from his doctor and we believed him. And we, he also authorized us to uh, write under his, authorized us to review under his name so that yes. we can actually be the third on the aisle together. And I also have access to his bank account. So what the, I think oh we're set. Oh my God, he really trusts you. Elizabeth. We're good, we're good. So welcome to episode 43 of Three on the Aisle, AKA Two on the Aisle today. A podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And we're thrilled to be back with you talking um, more theater in the month of December. And the month that, of course, uh, when things start to be very holiday-esque, uh, and it's the time of, you know, 13 million productions of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> I've seen two. 12,999,999 are... Probably that many too many, from my point of view. But also it's the time when the uh, best of the year theater lists come out. And maybe on our next show, our final show of the year, we'll do some, yeah. uh, we'll do some we may, ranking we and stuff. We'll have a when, little, little look back. And maybe when, when Terry's back and feeling better, we can, we can all wrangle over what the best of the year We're was. We're going to rank the Christmas carols. Oops. Yes, we can. <laughs> Just drop. She's throwing things, folks. Elizabeth is out of control today. And um, today, of course, uh, we also have... A wonderful guest uh, back with us, Chris Jones, the chief theater critic of the Chicago Tribune. He'll be with us to talk about all things Chicago theater. So uh, we have that for you. And of course, our usual discussion of the things that some of the favorite. I am so bummed that the show you're going to discuss, I have not seen yet the show you are going to discuss because I am so dying to have an opinion about it. Okay. Well, I will, uh, you will, we can come back to that show yes. in, a, in another uh, later date. I'm, I'm sure we, okay. we may have to. All right, fine. Well, we'll keep people in, in some uh, mis uh, mystery about what we're talking about. <laughs> For just about. like half an hour. Yeah, exactly. So loyal listeners of the podcast, and, and really there is no other kind of Correct. listener of this podcast, <laughs> uh, will remember that Chris was one of our earliest guests. It was a great honor to have him uh, back. He made a memorable appearance uh, in March of last year. Yeah, 2019-18. I'm losing wow. track. You a thousand that? years ago. Did you do How do no, you know I looked that? it up. <laughs> How do you even know what month he was on? I looked it up. Oh, okay. Um, and and back then we we spent some quality time. I, I remember it was a really fun conversation about <laughs> discussing the uh, the Hamilton strategy of touring and and sitting down in Chicago and and um, and I kind of want to touch back on on that a bit again um, and see what happened with that. So uh, and of course a lot more. Uh, without further ado, I'm pleased to welcome Chris Jones back on Three on the Isle. All right, nice to be back. Oh Thank you God. so much, Chris, for being with us. It's two it's two accents. <laughs> Oh, duking it out. That's true. Move out, Peter. I'm the only. I'm the only. Uh, I'm the only uh, uh, native-born person on this uh, on this there podcast. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, actually, yeah. Can, can you? Uh, the so last year, a uh, year and a half ago, uh, we were uh, talking about Hamilton, which was big news at yeah. the time in Chicago. And can you tell us a bit about what happened there? Because I remember we had a conversation about like. Their, their pricing strategy and, and, and the, the wisdom of pretty much like 
milking a show for all it's worth and competing, like basically a show eating its own tail mm. in some way. <laughs> um, so what happened with that? Did it just pan out well, well for them? Or? Hamilton basically has, uh, as we sit here right now, it has about four weeks left in its run here. Hmm. Um, and so it closes uh, uh, the first Sunday in January. Wow. I think I think a lot of people here feel like it's closing too soon. Really? Um, obviously, a lot of, you know, the people in the city, the waiters, the restaurants, everyone is sorry to see it go. It will have been a a three-year run. Uh, uh, and I, it was funny, I was at the theater the other night, and in my left ear appeared the producer, David Stone, who is the producer of Wicked, as right. you all know. Sure. And in my, le in my left ear, he says, just remember, we're still the longest running show in Chicago. Oh, God. <laughs> Bragging rights. <laughs> and I said, respect. I said, respect. Yeah, Indeed, it's very funny. It's actually, it's interesting what you just said about that little uh, ecosystem. Uh, around Hamilton, you know, like the restaurants and, and all that, because you, you, yes. have, you, you, you did an article not long ago about the economic impact uh, yes. of Chicago's storefront theaters, which I think yes. you had said was $80 million. And I think yes. that's something that's not often because theater is often talked about in terms of box office. But I think we need to talk about everything that's around it. And, and I just feel in a way we're not good at selling ourselves that way in terms of the economic impact that we can have. I, I totally agree with that. I think that the, you know, it is interesting. People create multiples around how much money is spent on a theater ticket. So the, the theory would go, if you imagine somebody comes in from the suburbs and uh, buys a ticket to Hamilton, say, then they eat dinner at the restaurant down the street. That waiter at the restaurant down the street then gets a shift she wouldn't have gotten. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then she then spends the money she earns on that shift at a different, at her local bar right where she lives, for example. So you can see a dollar spent on a theater ticket spiraling sort of through the economy. And people often talk about eight times, you know, the multiple of the actual, for every dollar spent on a ticket, $8 is generated in the economy. And I think that's, that's absolutely true. And a show like Hamilton, uh, for, for us, has been a huge draw because, uh, you know, people have come from throughout the Midwest to see it. The, the tricky part is they, over time, have begun to roll out more touring companies. And so mm -hmm. the moment you put another, another Hamilton close to mm -hmm. Chicago, then the so-called clearance isn't there and the value of the ticket goes down. But, but I think... I think the interesting thing about Hamilton Economics is that that producer, Jeffrey Seller, he wants to sell every ticket without discounting the ticket. So if people are always, people keep saying to me this month here, you know, should Hamilton be closing? And I say, well, no, it absolutely could run profitably, but it probably couldn't run without discounting mm. on a Wednesday on a Wednesday matinee. And then I think what starts to happen is the ticket price in New York is is threatened by that. Like, mm -hmm. in other words, you want to keep Hamilton, you know, the, the, the amount of money people are spending to go see it. Like, if you want to see Hamilton in New York tonight, it's probably, it's certainly 500 bucks, right? Maybe 600 bucks for a good seat. If you and want you to go tonight, yes. Yes. If you want to go tonight. Right, right. And you don't, and you don't want to threaten that, you know. So so the, the game is really, it's not just about running profitably for them. It's about maintaining this, Aura of exclusivity right, and high price. Right, but what about what about the um, 
wasn't the Hamilton, the, you know, in, in Chicago, they also put together this Hamilton, the exhibition on, right, the, on that island to the north. <laughs> it's it's terrible. A, that disaster. didn't work, right? No, and it was fabulous, too. It was like a museum I mean, with hundreds of rooms or something to show various aspects yeah. of it. So that was uh, David Corrins, who is the very gifted designer, as you guys both know, for many shows, Beetlejuice and mm -hmm. Hamilton, among others. And he uh, he created sort of his own tribute to Alexander Hamilton based on the guy himself. They created a massive building. And I, I really mean it. It was massive. It looked like an F aircraft hangar out by the lake here wow. and uh and you walk through it and it was spectacularly good but people didn't i i think they i don't know why it didn't work it wasn't a great location it i, I don't think if you think about have other broadway shows had exhibitions and i don't know that you really have seen many of them mm. i mean like downton abbey had one i think in my in times square if memory serves and but i think they, but they may be overreached with the exhibition. Well, they I, did. I just love the idea that, like, you know, Universal has, like, the Jurassic Park ride. Right. And it's not like, oh, my God, we're going to yeah. do the same. But with Alexander Hamilton, there's such a... I mean, it's so insane that you, it's one of those things where you think, well, it could just work, actually. Why not? Especially if you, as you say, was really well done. Well, the, it says to me that the the uh, maybe the, the real draw here was the hip-hop that Lin-Manuel created around the show and not the history. I think it, that's right. I think that's right. People were not as fascinated. It didn't really spark this whole other uh, uh, renaissance and in interest in, in Revolutionary War history. Uh, it really was about this experience, this two and a half hour experience. Yeah, the, the, the revolutionary cosplay didn't really uh, explode. Uh, <laughs> we should point out to the audience also that Chris, uh, you know, not only appears in print in Chicago, right. he's also the critic for the Daily News now in New York, which is owned by the same company. Uh, his, his reviews run both in print and on the website, the Daily News website, I assume. They do. Um, can you talk a little bit, so we just so the audience uh, across the country understands the, the how you manage <laughs> to be the Chicago <laughs> Tribune's critic and also to uh, work the uh, the Great White Way and its environs uh, for but another it, newspaper? It's 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 difficult. Uh, <laughs> it involves a fair bit of travel, as you guys know. We critics, we can't sort of put, we can't like put shows together in a, like a convenient way over a week. You have to see them when you have to see them. Right. Right. If you deviate from that, people have a heart attack around you. So <laughs> uh, I end up coming quite a lot for very short periods of time, but it's fun. Uh, and, you know, people in Chicago, my readers in Chicago go to Broadway all the time. I mean, we have a constant stream of people going to Broadway all the time. There's enormous interest here in there's, there are plenty of people in Chicago who never go to the theater here or rarely and go to Broadway all Interesting. the time. So what is Broadway that? is Broadway's a bit, I don't know, it's people, Broadway's Broadway, Peter. I mean, people, as you know, people people love to go. So uh, so it's just a question of getting on a plane and seeing the shows. Well, well it's also like a, a very rich uh, relationship between the two cities. It is, uh, it is. Because, well, I mean, just, just speaking about Broadway, like Chicago is often where... Broadway shows are incubated. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of we have a lot of tryouts here. It's been a sort of a weird year. We've lost half of them. You know, we were supposed to have the Michael Jackson tryout that oof. went away. Uh, you know that 
I assume what happened with that ultimately is they didn't need the publicity of a tryout to some degree. They, they're going to quietly <laughs> open in August, quietly. Right. Let's quietly open a musical with Michael Jackson. That is completely going to happen. And then there is a Spears musical allegedly in the works that, as they as they say on uh, as they say, Joe Allen needs a lot of work. And then the, uh, then we have the show, The Devil Wears Prada, which um, it was supposed to try out here this summer, and they've just announced now it's a year. It's going to be another year before it opens. Right. So. Was there was there anything this past year that you saw first in Chicago and then back on Broadway? And, uh, and maybe it didn't happen this year in particular, but did you notice that they actually, what kind of work, I'm always surprised about that because I don't have the, the opportunity to see those two stages. And I'm just super curious about how exactly, like for instance, when you write a review about a show that's in triad, do you feel very conscious about the fact that clearly the, the reviews will be scrutinized even perhaps even more than it would be on Broadway? Well, I think that's true. I mean, I am at peace with the idea, and Peter can speak to this too because he deals with the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm at peace with the idea that their work is in progress. They want, you know, to have, they want the critic to sort of say what is or isn't working, and the audience and our readers enjoy being part of that process. So, you know, mm -hmm. I get all these letters from people saying, oh, I saw Tootsie when you did, and, um, Uh, I think this act two should have this, and you know it's kind of a fun. It's kind of a fun part of the job. I find the tryouts really vary. Um, what I mean by that is, if you look at sometimes, and I would put say the share show in this category, that they're not finished. Like the share <laughs> show in its tryout, the last 10 minutes, which if you remember, and you know with the mega mix, they I weren't. I could have forget. <laughs> so you have that, and then you have shows. That the one that I always remember, the greatest ever tryout I ever saw, was the producers, mm. and it's here. And you were like, "Well, it's five minutes too long, but pretty perfect." You know, it was kind. Of, it was like a magical night. One of the greatest mm. that that tryout mm. here. Anne Bancroft was dancing on the tables, and Mel Brooks was. Here. I mean, it was just a kind of a wild night, and. Uh, That, but, but most of the time, they still need a lot of work. I find they usually, they usually have to find their truth, if you like. They're often sort of overplayed in, in tryout. I do think, you know, it is, it is interesting. Um, so a jagged little pill. Which just opened jagged, on Broadway. Right. Just opened on Broadway. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is easy when reviewing. I guess what I'm saying is it, is it is difficult when reviewing a show that you saw in tryout right. not to think it is better than it is because you get blinded by how much it's improved. Correct. Let's like, forget the fact that sometimes fundamental problems are not solved. That's completely I, true. I, I totally think that's a weakness of mine, uh, and I, I try to be conscious of it. But it, that it is, that is, what do you think about that, Peter? Oh, I totally agree. It's a real a mind uh, screw, that, uh, you know, yes. uh, to, that happens. You're playing your, because I think that the brain uh, of, of, a, vet, of a, a veteran theater goer, uh, the second time through, makes some allowances. It can, it, 
It corrects for some of the yeah. problems you saw the first time, and you you look for the moments that were more enjoyable for you, and that sometimes becomes the leading edge of what you see the second time. It's That's happened to me on a sev on several occasions. It happened to me with If Then, I would say. It happened to me with Mean Girls. It happened to yeah. me even in a minor way with Beetlejuice, all of which had tryouts in Washington and really aren't none of them are were great musicals uh, either to start with or to finish well, with excuse me uh, so i'm just saying i'm this is in my a considered estimation as a person who saw them in all their incarnations and yes as chris says you there is also stockholm syndrome involved you you are now somehow your identity is more yeah. clearly connected to what you've seen and you are so also encouraged by the idea that if you had some thoughts about correcting things or polishing things or refining things and they've taken your review to heart that's a, that's very gratifying and you have to feel you know at some point somebody might say to you well hey we we did what you said and you still think it stinks <laughs> and you know well, that's, that's not really fair as a you know as a as a as an arbiter of these things uh without giving them some credit for what's changed I think that's right. But, you know, I always think theater is a time bound. You know, all you can do as a critic is review what's in front of you on that night. And sometimes they do take your advice and it still doesn't work. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes I should also say that there are shows, Elizabeth, to your question, that really do improve. I mean, there's, there's been some major improvements. I mean, I the show that I always remember as having improved the most ever was uh, Moving Out, the Billy Joel oh, show. Oh, it's famous. Oh, right. Right, which in Chicago was just absolute, it was chaos. Incomprehensible, was like, what? right? What are they doing? Right. What are they doing? <laughs> right. No idea. And then uh, she, Twyla's up, sort of went back into her head and went back in the studio, came out, perfect show, great show. Everything was every big hit. But, you know, the advantage of moving as, as out... Per, was, I'm sorry, as perfect as a show involving yeah, exactly. Billy Joel can <laughs> right. be. Oh, no, don't even get her started, please, Chris. <laughs> it was certainly, you know, but the, uh, the other fascinating thing about this business of new musicals is that often you find that, I find this too, that often members of a creative team don't always agree on what's right, what's working and what's right, not working. Right, right. And so often there you are in Washington and Peter Marks comes in with his review and Peter Marks says in act two, you know, the problem with act two is this character shouldn't be there. Maybe one of the people on the creative team agree with that. And then they're like, look, I'm right. Peter Marks agrees with right. me. <laughs> That's the other. I think often the assumption that the show, you know, knows what it wants is not always true. Right. Yeah, that's very, very much the case. I think that's right. Uh, these are collaborative efforts by, you know, uh, whole teams of people who have input. And God knows, once the review comes out, the, the validating and unvalidating of various points of view becomes part of the mix of how this thing progresses. The other thing we should say is, you know, Chris, uh, I think part of the reason that so many shows do go to Chicago it's not an accident that they go, you know, yes, of course, there's a tremendously uh, avid theater going audience. But I think and I've heard it from many producers, they want to hear what Chris has to say specifically because they feel like he's done this enough. He's practiced at it. And there's a there's a tempering of 
uh, a critic who knows he's writing to both a Chicago audience and potentially to a New York audience. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a it's a delicate part of the job, and people don't understand that. The interesting thing, I sometimes get blowback from people who aren't quite as thrilled with the idea that they're being what they think market tested with a show. Right. right. They think they're paying right. Broadway prices to evaluate something that is going to be better when it gets to New York. And that's where they're going to producers are going to make money off their tickets. Right. I mean, it's it's a it's a you have to make people understand, as Chris said, that there is a particular joy in seeing something fresh. Uh, at, in its first incarnation, do, do, that that is a privilege not everybody appreciates. Always. Do, do, do you ever feel like resentment on on the part of some theater goers that they're paying full price for something that's still a work in progress? I mean, it's is. I mean, sure. I, I think it used to be that previews used to be cheaper, for instance, in New yes. York, and mm -hmm. now they're well, at the same price. And and you're really seeing something that's often not ready. Like things are moving around, numbers are, move, you know, mm. like actors have to, are doing lines that they just learned in the afternoon. Uh, I would, you know, that's that's absolutely true. I, I, I think there have been times when people really, really felt that. Uh, if the show is really bad, for example, uh, then people, there have been tryouts here that have, people have felt, just got annoyed. It, there's been a feeling that, the work wasn't done in, you know, but I think if, I think people are forgiving, you know, we should, should my, my Chicago people are very, they're sort of, you know, Midwestern nice people for the most part. And they, they do feel invested in what Peter said, the excitement of being the first person to see something. I mean, I think it, in, in my job, it's the biggest thrill I get is something new. Uh, I especially right. like new music. I mean, it's nothing like it. it. You know, for me to drag my ass out to see Beauty and the Beast for the 12th time, and, right. you know, I do it. People want to know if it's any good, but it's not anything I get a lot out of. But a brand new musical, you know, just watching them figure out. They're so, you know, I was thinking this a Jagged Little Pill just this week. They're so difficult. They are so difficult to do. Um, and they're so, they're such strange beasts. And there's not really one way to do them all. And yet they, they all constantly sort of borrow from each other. Right. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's just so, and, you know, they're so hard. They're so hard. They, yeah. they really are difficult, I think. And, and the other thing is that you, in order for people to come to see it, it has to be familiar to people. So we constantly see, you know, these jukebox shows and the movie-based shows, mostly because that's what makes money. And those are even harder, you know, and it, it, I was thinking, it, you know, and you look at something like Tina Turner, where you've got her watching the creative team. So Tina and her handlers mm -hmm. are, you know, very, very, very difficult, you know, very. I have great respect for how hard it is. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris, what, you know, because we had on a few weeks ago, we had on the show, we had on Tracy Letts. Uh, <laughs> who is a great guest, really smart yeah. and and much uh, more sedate a human being than I expected. I <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting. I was so maybe I thought he was going to come in like with a, a machete and and slash us with his lacerating thoughts, but he was actually quite um sweet and cordial and we talked a little bit about his love of Chicago theater and this idea, you know, that I do think is held more strongly in Chicago than any other city in the country, which is that Chicago is kind of the premier theater town in America, 
for real acting and real, you know, muscular writing, which I right. I find kind of wonderful. And I do think it's it it may be true. I mean, I don't like to put you know put one city up against the other because obviously there's way more theater in New York than anywhere else. There is. There is. There but is. Yeah, what there is. is this pride in Chicago theater that seems so intense? There's such a strong belief in what's done there. Where does that emanate from? Is that is that generated by criticism? Is that generated by theater goers or actors? What does that come from? Well, there is. I I think it is something that it's the badge of honor in this city. This idea that actors here look like everyone else. They they don't have to be pretty. They're not mm. they're not fancy, and that none of them are really making that much money. Mm. So it's impossible here to make a lot of money in the live theater. That's true in New York to a large extent, but it's very much true here. And so I think people take enormous pride in the truth and honesty of the work. And a lot of that really is 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 contingent or was was born with the early days of Steppenwolf, which would bring actors to New York. And they were these sort of famously intense actors like Malkovich and Garrison East and these guys who would bring to New York a kind of a, a, a robust style of acting. And I had this experience. I remember... Um, watching Tracy's play August Osage County on Broadway. And I remember there was a guy next to me in the seat and he sort of laid back in his seat like this and he went, oh my God, oh my God. And he was talking about, it was in some very intense scene. And it was like, it was as if he'd never, he was like, oh, these, oh, they don't mess around. And, uh, you know, and I think that's, that is just kind of a thing here. Hmm. Um, now, you know, it, it's come in for some criticism because a lot of people see it as very male, very sort of, very white in its, mm. you know, that sort of guy, muscular macho thing. And I think, this, I think Steppenwolf has really moved to a more different, you know, a different aesthetic. Uh, but it remains, and Tracy, of course, is still, kind of the guy I mean the sense he's got two plays on Broadway this season right and and he's not only and he's acting in one of them as well as having I mean I don't think I can't think of the last time somebody had two plays in a single Broadway season and appeared in one of them right I mean that might well you know so I mean he's a he's he has sort of become if you'd said to me 10 years ago will this guy be a big star (laughs) I would never have I I, it amazes me but (laughs) on all platforms he's on all black. Yeah. Massive, massive stuff. I know. Massive, it, massive, yeah, massive, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I wonder if one of the reasons where there's this intense, why theater acting is perceived differently in Chicago is perhaps because, I mean, while there is obviously, there are obviously um, TV shows and, and movies made in Chicago, people yes. don't move there to become like a screen actor. Whereas in New York, no. I, I get the feeling right. that for many actors, you do theater to get a, you know, to put it on your resume, on your reel, and then you move right. into TV or, or film or, or whatever. But because well, there's think, not that much of an industry, a screen industry in Chicago, I mean, there is, but much smaller than in LA or here. Right. Um, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, we're having that's changing a bit because we've got all the so-called procedural shows here now, like Chicago. Oh, Man, everything's Chicago, named Chicago, Man, right? Chicago. Everything's named Chicago. Chicago BGYN's my favorite I'm one of these years. I'm waiting for Chicago pizza. I mean, that's the only thing. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Don't, don't, don't even get started yeah, there. You know, those yeah, are yeah, like yeah, yeah. 
Those are words uh, that can start. Well, you wars. know, Tracy, Tracy's play, Superior Donuts, did become a CBS. Oh, that's, uh, right. that's right. Briefly, it's yeah, one of the very few shows. Actually, <laughs> there was also a Canadian series um, that was set in a convenience store. I forget, I'm looking on the name that became that's a right. TV series. But it's so rare to have a play turn into a TV series. Superior Donuts is the only one I can think of, mm. of in recent memory. Yeah, right. Um, I'm curious, just to shift a little bit in thought, because you, you bring this up with J Jagged Little Pill, which uh, we both have seen, and I think Elizabeth's going to see very shortly yeah. uh, on Broadway. Uh, I don't think Chris or I were particular fans of the show, but certainly the you know the in, the the the, uh, the infiltration into theater of the of references to Me Too and the white gaze on 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 black culture and how black people see um, white sort of hegemony uh, in the world. Those things seem to, uh, are those, the, are these are these themes um, alive on Chicago stages, Chris? Are we seeing more of that being recognized? And I, I just don't know how much of that is, um, is, this communica is, this, is this communication that's happening from city to city to city? Um, are we are we all on the same page in terms of seeing this kind of theater evolving, coming to the fore? And is it happening in part because there's a turnover in artistic directors and people who and, the, and yeah. who we're recognizing as the writers who need to be seen? Um, I, I think it's yes, it's become a huge part of the conversation here, and, and I'm mostly for the better. I mean, I think that there's been a real the the Chicago theater has diversified in the last decade, really in the last five years it is spectacularly better than it was five years ago from that point of view. And I can't, I really can't uh, reiterate just how enormous that change has been. It's been, it's been revolutionary in many ways. And, and I think that has been, the theater has really, uh, really benefited from it for the most part. But there's also been a shift slow shift, but a shift in artistic directors, I think. Uh, and I think we're just beginning to see a different kind of conversation happening, you know, happening in the theaters. I, I think, you know, from a critic's point of view, it is the job is never easy. And it's probably if you're, you know, the middle aged white guy like me, you you do have to sort of check your own prejudices and your own privileges and all of that. I believe in that. I'm, I sort of doubt everything all the time that mm. I write. But on the other hand, you know, one of the differences is there's much more focus now on much more focus now on who the critic is. Not a bad thing, I don't think. But it's you know, it is obviously uh, there's a tension, I think, between that and the idea that what some of us believe that, you know, I like to think that I can see a show and sort of have things to say about it that really is coming less from me and who I am and more from the show itself. And I, that to me is a core of what we do, that we we, we we do try and listen to the show, you know, and let and let the let the let the show speak through us, even if we don't love it. It's still coming from the show. And sometimes people go, Well, it's all coming from you. And I'm like, Well, no, I really <laughs> I like to think I've done this long enough that I can, you know, and sometimes a critic has to say, if you are this audience member, you will like this. Mm -hmm. And if you are this audience member, you will like that. You right, are not. Right. We, we're trying to serve. If you work for a big general newspaper, mm -hmm. there are many, many different readers we have to talk to. So I find all of these things very, very complicated. And it, it is certainly true. Uh, I will say this, that when shows like Jagged Little Pill or Slave Play, 
are dealing with these very difficult issues. I mean, slave play for me is very much about white critics and black playwrights. I actually think one of the central themes of that play is actually that. And of course, he's a very brilliant writer, as you guys know. And it's a very, I would describe it as a self-protected play that is almost impossible to review in some ways. You know, mm. in other words, a lot of these plays now um, really explore this debate within the play. You know what I'm saying? Yes. A you right. know, and it was sort of true of Jagged Little Pill. It's like, it's like, okay, can you be in favor of what the musical's saying and still say, hey, there are too many issues in this musical without coming off as someone who doesn't respect those issues? You know what I mean? Well, I think the problem is like it's it can be very hard to. I mean, you have to differentiate between the 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 good intentions that so often create bad art, yes, and you have to make yeah. that distinction right. clear in what you're saying. The the show is right. trying to say this, but it's not working for these reasons. No, having having a a conscience and a a a woke perspective is not immunization against criticism. I mean it doesn't right. mean that what you're saying is being told in an artful and entertaining way right. and that is right. you know if you're just throwing this stuff in to to and you know to uh, inoculate yourself from the the suggestion that it isn't relevant uh, then you're you're really just act it's another form of cynicism. To me. Yes, mm. that's right. And, and I, I always I always say a critic should be on the side of complexity, that ultimately most right. things and some of this as you get older, you see this more. I think that, you know, we're all going to die. Whoever we what? are. We're, 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 <laughs> this is the most depressing <laughs> comment I've ever heard. I did. Oh, None of it. <laughs> None of us are here for that long. And we share more than we, you know, there's more that unites us than divides us at the end of the day. And I think that it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, ultimately that's the truth. And that, and that most things in life are really complicated. Mm. They just are. Most right. issues are complicated. Right, and right. I always gravitate to theater that's, you know, complicated, where it says, theater that says, I don't know the answer, you know, and uh, because I don't know many answers either. That's very interesting. Uh, um, I, I'm curious, uh, Chris, about uh, what you see leaving um, Chicago and coming to other cities. Has it? Are you? Is there any change in in terms of the um, focus on looking at what Chicago is doing? I don't mean in terms of big musicals, but I mean in terms of of serious plays, complicated plays. Are they uh, being? Um, minted in Chicago in the numbers that you are comfortable with? Uh, is, is that changed over time in terms of how much new work is being generated oh, yeah. in your, in your uh, neck of the woods? Well, I think, you know, you can make an analogy between the, the golden age of TV with all the streaming TV that's around now, that in many ways, I would say, compared to, let's say, a decade ago, I see far, far more new plays at far more theaters than would have been the case a decade ago because there are a lot of artists in this city and other cities who don't want to do Chekhov or they don't want to do right. uh, you know, early 20th century American drama. They want to actually create new work mm -hmm. as a part of their political and aesthetic mission. So we're seeing uh, enormously large amounts of new work. Like if you look at, say, there's this thing at the Actors Theatre of Louisville, the Humana Festival, that sure. you guys know. That used to be one of the few places to see new plays. Mm -hmm. Now there are new play development 
you know, I could think of 10 theaters in Chicago that have new play development, very active, big professional new play development things. Wow. So I would say we see a load more new plays. The difficulty now, though, is getting noticed because there are so many of them. Interesting. And I think that is, I think that, you know, that, that theaters generate an enormous number of new plays. Uh, I, I sometimes write about, you know, one, I, I guess I also am interested in the sort of the working class playwright, the writer who comes out mm. of another profession. We, there's been a lot of the professionalization of ride playwriting, like people with an MFA from Brown I, who write the same you know, play as everybody else. This, you know, actually, I, this is like, that to me is one of the biggest problems in American playwriting yeah. right now. Hmm. And, yeah, um, yeah. And I think it's just not talked about enough in general. Do, do, I mean, I feel like it's like a virus that has yes, the MFA virus has completely spread in New York. And so I guess like from what you're saying, it feels like it's the same in Chicago, which is interesting because the, the city has a much more in terms of its theater scene, a much more like, quote unquote, like wor like muscular working class. Working class is not quite yeah. the right word, but, but like a bit more, you know, less academic. But isn't that a reflection yeah. of the homogenization of the audience? I mean, you don't have yes. the working class. The, right. you know, that that right. aspect of there, you don't see those people at the theater. No, you don't. And it's a, it is were, Elizabeth's were, were right. Ever? I mean, always, or, oh, or, sure. or, or are we fantasizing oh, about, yeah? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. And my family, you know, I mean, they were, you know, they were not rich people, right. um, but they went to the theater. My grandparents, um, you mm -hmm. know, that was a, 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 a thing they did. And they were, they worked, my grandfather was a, was a furniture salesman. Yeah, no, you're uh, right. You know, I think know, it's, it's, it's really reflecting, this professionalization is reflecting, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I, so I, I do think that, we, we need to broaden who's writing these plays and broaden how those plays then get developed. You know, the, the other thing that's happened here is Chicago traditionally has had a lot of ensemble created work. That of course, the tricky part of that is that there's not a lot of money in that and it's complicated who wrote it and who. So, you know, that's the other sort of dilemma that uh, is creating is creating those sorts of things. Um, so it's it's, you know, I, I think everything's good. I, I think the positives outweigh the negatives um, in, in general. I think it's an exciting time. I'm in the theater. There's a lot mm -hmm. of change, but I, but you know, there's definitely some challenges. Um, one last question, Chris, for you. And yeah. I'm asking this slowly so you can think as I ask the question, because <laughs> it's that question I get asked and I never know what to say. Uh, and that has to do with what's coming up that you're intrigued by in Chicago theater. And I'm wondering, are there a few things <laughs> that you can reach into your brain about in the coming months that you're thinking We're of as, as, Maybe uh, or you have points. it in right on your calendar, or yeah, or it's right in front of you on your desk. But <laughs> that, that you know that people uh, out he, out there in 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 podcast listening land would be curious about themselves. Uh, well, I would say uh, probably the more one of the most interesting things is the Outsiders, which hmm. is that, that very well known um, kids novel that's being done. Oh. I think oh, wow. probably will go to Broadway, and so I I think that. That is a very, very interesting pro uh, project. The Steppenwolf is about to open uh, Dance Nation, which I actually haven't seen ever, so I'm excited to see that next weekend. So that's that's kind of our last, uh, you know, big exciting opening of the year. Uh, so there's, you know, and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. So it should be an exciting time. That's yeah. my favorite play, the whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's my favorite. And and, and I assume, Chris, you'll be writing about a whole bunch of other stuff. I'll do my best. I'll I, do my best. And we, we look forward to seeing you back in New York. 
All right, sir. Uh, thank, thank you, you for your insights. It's always a <laughs> thank pleasure. You. Thank you much. Alrighty. My pleasure. All right. See you guys soon. Take Bye -bye. care. Take care. Okay, and now it's time to talk about that show that I alluded to earlier that I'm dying to see. Mm. It's based on an album that I could not stand at the time. It represented such a horrifying period of the 90s, the whole Lily's Fair. I just could not deal with that stuff then. And I wonder if I would have more patience with it now. Apparently, it seems to be uh, enjoying some kind of critical reappraisal. Because I remember, unfortunately, I was well alive at the time. <laughs> and uh, I remember... What are you talking about? What show are you talking about, Elizabeth? I'm talking about your pick, Peter. Okay. Uh, uh, well, what is that? What, what you want? You're going to say oh, it, or oh, am I going to say yes, it? Yes. Okay. Uh, please I tell us. I hear you say it. Tell us about the jagged little pill. I musical. just wanted to hear her say jagged I know, little right? pill. So we're moving now, as uh, Elizabeth indicated, into our our picks of the week or month or half week, half month, whatever this is. Uh, and mine is a show I just reviewed on Broadway, uh, which is Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. It's a jukebox version of the album, the 95 album that included uh, such songs as You Ought to Know, which is a, a, a huge, huge popular song. And it's been transformed by uh, her and uh, Diane Paulus, the director, uh, who's the artistic director of, the, of ART, the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the play, the musical debuted uh, over a year ago. And I must say, I found it to be a turgid and <laughs> so it's an unpicked humorless, humorless. Oh, you you forgot to mention who wrote the book. And the book is by Diablo Cody, famously the screenwriter, uh, the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of Juno. And what they have done is they have tried to build a story around the songs in the musical, somewhat in the manner, I guess, of Mamma Mia, that's the style, you know, the way you insert songs and write around a story around the songs to try to like make Like insert them. a meaning and onto, project a meaning that is not the original meaning necessarily And, the, and, and what they've really taken is they've turned it into a, a, a song cycle, if you will, about an uptight uh, Connecticut <laughs> white bread family uh, who've adopted an African-American daughter. And it's, it's it's filled with angsty moments. Everyone's in pain of some kind. The father is, you know, one of these lawyers who's working too many hours at his job and therefore neglects his family. And his wife, as a result, is sexually frustrated and now takes those jagged little pills that the... Uh, that the, wait, wait, the, the why the are they jagged? I don't even know what it. I don't even know. I don't know. You never see the pills, uh, uh, but she's she's buying them from pushers on the street. On you know, kids who who skateboard by and hand her the pills. Is that, is that is that in the wild streets of Greenwich? You know, <laughs> wherever it is, it's. I I found it all so cliched and predictable. The son is a Harvard-bound kid. He's the perfect student, but he's not perfect because he witnesses a friend of his commit a sexual crime at a party, and he's agonized over the fact that he didn't reveal it to anybody and the daughter of course has nurses all the resentments that would be harbored by a an african-american uh, child growing up in an all-white environment that doesn't quite understand her so these it's all these problems sort of bumping into each other 
via this very narrowly framed set of songs, I think, that are mostly about Ajita, American Ajita, and uh, uh, middle cl- upper middle class concern, you know, worries. American Ajita, that's a really good title. Thank you. I know, that would have been a great title. American uh, so I was totally underwhelmed. There's one terrific number performed by Lauren Patton who plays a young, a, a lesbian teenager who's in love with the, the young black teen, teenager played by Celia Gooding, played very well. And uh, and Patton gets to sing the, the big You Ought to Know number, which uh, creates, prompts a standing ovation in the middle of the second act. And I just, I always wonder about those moments, how earned they are. I, I think it was a little, it's a little extreme. But in general, I thought the piece was way uh, overproduced and underwhelming. Wow, I'm, I'm totally sold. <laughs> can't wait. What um, did you see, Elizabeth? Well, I, I uh, saw a play that was the, the, it's been the talk of the town because it's a kind of iconic play that nobody's really seen or has not been seen much since uh, it premiered in 1978, I think. Uh, it's Fifu and of France by uh, oh, Moriarty and Fornes. Sure. So it's How a kind it? of it's a mythical play because right. it's talked about all the time right. uh, in in college theater courses on campus. It's done on campus fairly often, but it has not been done. It has not had major production in New York in what is it thirty five years. Right. Uh, and so Theater for a New Audience did it, uh, directed by uh, uh, Liliana uh, Blaine Cruz. They didn't do it during the si- the signature theater season on Fornes. I don't know if they no, did. No, and I think one of the reasons is that it's got some really tricky staging business because mm. at one point the action is divided, the audience is divided in four groups, and it's kind of like a promenade type of production. I think that's what it's called. Uh, so we were divided in four groups, and we were color coded. <laughs> And the set was also divided in rooms, so the mm. actors had to do the same bit like four times mm. as we went from room to room. And so the action actually is it's four different actions happening at the same time. Mm. It's, well, actually, when you see it, it's a lot clearer than what I make it sound like. Uh, although I'm not sure anything about this place is clear. Um, and so there was a lot of anticipation around this production, which has gotten pretty good reviews. And I was completely, it left me completely cold. And I think the play has not... It left you cold. It left me cold. I think the play has not aged well. Mm. Um, I think it's a play that's more interesting to think about than actually see. Mm. Or maybe it was the staging. I'm not sure it can be uh, done convincingly. I thought the acting in this production was very uneven, Mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Uh, some very strong performances and others much less so. Uh, and I think there was so much effort done on synchronizing all this parallel action, which is understandable. It's not easy to pull off. Uh, that everybody was so kind of focused on hitting their marks that I think maybe some... Well, Fornes is one of these um, sort of hothouse playwrights. I mean, she's got a great, she had a great reputation in the theater Mm -hmm. as a kind of visionary and a kind of experimentalist. And she was very influential. I think the people who were influenced by her, but her work is not seen very much these days. And I'm not sure. I think she's an academic sort of playwright. I think she's, you know, for some of the forms that she was exploding or exploring worked better as discussion points maybe than theatrical events. And I think I wonder if that's why exactly the the playwrights she's influenced are doing it 
better than what she actually did herself. I actually saw a really good production of Fifth Four and Her Friends maybe t 10 or 15 years ago in New York, but it was not, it was called Wickets. Mm. And I think it's because they actually did a lot of changes to the text. Um, but it was basically Fifth Four and Her Friends, but it, it was set, it was an immersive production set on an airplane and they had reproduced an airplane cabin and with the audience were the passengers and the actors were the flight attendants. Mm. So it's an entirely female cast, so they were all flight attendants. Mm. And it worked incredibly well, it was great. Um, so, and I think in a way, maybe that's the only way to do this play, it's just completely explode it actually as you uh, mm. explore it yeah. and explode it. Right. Um, because it really worked as wickets. I'm not sure, I, I would love to see another director try it, maybe it can be done. I mean, I, I do believe that there are no impossible plays. They're just like, there's no play that cannot be solved mm. Mm. by a good director. I, I really believe that. I, you know, I, I do wonder about if we're at a moment, you know, I, I sort of, you know, when, when Krista Jones was talking earlier about loving complexity, mm. uh, you know, I think also kind of enigmatic theater has its it's vogues and it's it's being in vogue and times it's not i do find myself enjoying getting lost a little mm -hmm. bit in plays yes. that don't necessarily have linear stories these days i saw a production of carol churchill's escaped alone mm -hmm. in washington recently and i was kind of gloriously um confused at times that kind of wonderful sense of you know that life is not explicable mm -hmm. and that the the, the apocalypses that we're anticipating are things that, you know, are only sort of, you know, um, marginally graspable by us. And listening to the this language that doesn't necessarily nail it down for us is is almost reassuring. So I, I so for the reasons that you tell me Fefo and her friends, Fefo and her friends didn't work for you. I'm wondering if I would be more. Maybe kind of inclined to sort maybe, of absorb Maybe, but you know, I, I'm actually, I'm all in favor of not understanding. I, actually, it's it's interesting that you're saying this because I just uh, re reviewed a play for the time called uh, Sleeping Car Porters, which mm. is at the brick. It's the tiny little black box in mm. Williamsburg. And I honestly, I really couldn't tell half the time <laughs> what was going on. And I found myself grinning. Yeah, yeah, see, that's All the time. These guys had no budget. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's more like a succession of, of scenes. Right. The link, it's kind of a, a it's, it imagines that the Zodiac Killer and Billy the Kid meet. <laughs> and the first scene is so well done. It, it's the best right. first scene I've seen all year. Yeah, it was so that's good. And wonderful. these guys had such a good sound design, which goes a long way, um, and which a lot of, most companies don't do enough with. But mm -hmm. these guys really knew how to use sound design. Very simple, but very efficient lighting. And just, I was completely, I was never bored. Yeah. And I have no idea what they're trying to say. Yeah, there's a, there we, you know, some people are very uh, fearful of things that they can't explain fully. And I think we're probably in this business of having to explain or trying to make sense of things sometimes to a, uh, almost to an unfortunate degree and at a time when you know there is so much good linear narrative in the in films and on television you know it's so there's so much compelling material mm -hmm. that that 
that shift that you have to make sometimes to these kind of these exotic voices in the theater can be hard, but I think really uh, stir you at a different level. And it's hard for us sometimes, I think, to uh, appreciate it and communicate it fully. But I like that. That, that right. there's probably a really great essay to be said about but, like the the joy of not understanding. But, but also, you know? I think I think in this particular case, but even in general, I really don't think it's my job to try to explain what's going right, on. Right, not to crack the code. No, you it's more right. like uh, what I was trying to do in that case was telling readers. This show is not for everybody. Right. Clearly, some people have no patience for like super low budget theater where you don't understand what's going on. What was the name on. of the play? It's called Sleeping Car Porters. I've it's, heard it's it. That wonderful. sounds familiar. No, it's, it's new. No? It's new. Who was the playwright? It's it's a guy named Ryan William Downey. Uh, hmm. And actually, you know, I mean, he also plays uh, the Zodiac Killer, and he did the sound design. I mean, it's one of those things where they like, you know all hands on deck. Hmm. Uh, but I, I think if you are ready to enjoy a show where some scenes don't work, but others work really, really well, and it costs $20. Where is it? It's at the Brick in Williamsburg. How long and is it running? I think you, you may know? Uh, enjoy it. Peter. Okay. Uh, yeah. It sounds like kind of, um, you know, it sounds like kind of you know, 20, my moment. I mean, come on. $20. I, I love that, that price. That first scene. I cannot price point say is good. enough about that first scene. I, I wish I could see it again. I wish I could go every night and see it. Just those first, like, 10 minutes. Wow. That's, That's how cool. good it was. Wow. I loved it. The first and the last. I mean, there's wow. also lots of great stuff in the middle. <laughs> so you see, this was nice because we moved from two shows we were not that thrilled by. And you're now talking about something that excited you. And and you've led me now down. To, you've led me to Sleeping Car Porters, which sounds like something right down my alley. And you did not lead me to Jacket Little Pill, but I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> I know you are. And you'll probably, well, we'll have well, a fight about it know. at we'll some see. point. Anyway. Okay. I think we're... Uh, our time is up for today. Oh my God! Imagine and just the two of us. Well, okay. A, a terror, a, a complete, a Terry teach out less time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange to only be the two of us, but it's kind of lovely too. Yes. So anyway, with all that said, of course we miss Terry very much. Yes, of course we do, Terry. We miss you. Um, we are not auditioning anybody else for your seat. Don't believe anything you hear. Uh, from anybody or but see us. on Twitter. Yeah, don't believe you know anybody at American Theater Magazine if they say that. Anyway, uh, with all that said, I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. Uh, you've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. And our producer is Herika Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at spelled out three on the aisle and write to us at three on the aisle at gmail.com. Please send us your questions because we will have a mailbag segment on a show very soon. Yes, in fact, I was—I wanted to say when we were talking to Chris, please uh, tell us what's happening in your city. Like, is there like interesting stuff? Like Chris was talking about how, you know, there's there's all this like this just burst of activity right. in Chicago. So like, you're is saying there people a, other places in uh, in this country and yeah, other countries. Have you noticed tell that us your local, stuff you love? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great. So please, and please let us know also what other topics you'd like us to talk about in future episodes. And please don't forget to leave a very positive review or rating on <laughs> iTunes or Google Play, because that just means we get that much more money. That's right. Yeah. yeah. From sponsorships. Yeah, and... our, our pockets are just filling with this. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. So thanks for listening, and we'll be with you again soon on the line to the women's room at intermission. No, on no. the aisle. Sorry. 